The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Inside Out with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, Are We Fiddling While California Burns and Miami Sinks? Why Can't We Do Something About Global Warming? Fly over California and look at the parched earth. Go to Miami Beach and watch the waters rise. Why are we still arguing about global warming? Why are we still resisting making the big changes? And whose fault is it? Special interests? China? Politicians who are afraid to ask us or industry to change? Or is the problem us, all of us? We want the car that uses lots of gas because it's more comfortable. We don't want to pay more for green products. Very few of us are prepared to change our lives or demand change from industry. And fewer of us even know what to do. A couple of months ago, climate scientist Dr. Grant Dean came on the show and shared his knowledge with us. Now that we've had more drought, more record-breaking cold, more tornadoes, we're asking him back. And he is back with us today, so stay tuned. Call in with your questions or comments or email us. You can also continue the conversation by joining our after-show phone or internet forum. So let's talk. California is burning, so let's stop fiddling. And let's face the music together. And now, here's Beth from the Inside Out. Hi there, everybody. It's, it's good to see you. I feel kind of sad about this topic. And before I talk about the topic and introduce our guest, um, I just want to share with you a wonderful comment we had on our show last time, which was about aging, you know, how we're aging no matter how old we are. If we're two going on three, we're aging. If we're 70 going on 71, we're aging. And uh, it was Christine wrote in, I listened to the show and loved the question of what do I value about myself and why? See, in the show, we were talking about how when we're aging, we lose a lot of things about ourselves. But are there parts of us that we don't have to lose? that we can value, we should start valuing it now. Anyway, continuing with her comment, I could see that I put a lot of energy into the parts of myself that help me earn a living, like my intelligence. I also volunteer at my child's school teaching art and could see that I rarely value my ability to connect with children and love and have patience with them. This would be a great quality to nurture, and I'm going to continue to work on that with support. So I love that. There was a lot of conversation after that show of people really looking at themselves, seeing how much we value those aspects of ourselves that have to do with survival, making a living or pleasing people. When we were children, it came out as pleasing people, you know, ego-based stuff. And um, how many qualities we have that are not valued in monetarily or maybe weren't valued in our families that are really intrinsic to us that we might be able to keep. Like who likes a grumpy old person when you can be a pleasant old person? <laughs> a pleasant, disabled, maybe slightly demented old person. Anyway, there it is. Listen to that show if you haven't already. It was great. And speaking about ego, I think we're going to be looking at the ego yet again today in our show about climate change. 
So I'm not the expert here. Of course, Grant is. And uh, those of you who heard him last time, you know that he's very charming and uh, very open and very knowledgeable. And, you know, he's a world-renowned scientist, and I'm not. So uh, I, I'm, I know he's going to have a lot to share with you that, uh, that goes way beyond what we know. But I also want to say something just to lead into this show is that I feel desperate about climate change, and I'm wondering how you feel, too. So I'd like everybody in the audience to really ask themselves, how do I feel about climate change? And, and really confront that feeling directly. So let's take a moment. Now, I'm going to tell you why I feel desperate. And I feel desperate on many levels. Of course, on that global consciousness level of mine, I know that a lot of people are suffering tremendously, that we're already facing issues of food shortages because of drought, because people are losing their homes when they live in places where they're going underwater, that there have been horrible storms. We just had more, you know, tornadoes. And people are losing everything. And, and the earth is just going through all of this upheaval. So on that level, I'm very distressed about climate change. But I want to get very personal here. And I want you to do that too, which is I am desperate about climate change. I love where I live. I chose to live here. In fact, James and I chose to live here in this beautiful forested area of southern Oregon. And I'm scared to death it's going to disappear because of the drought. We've already lost. I mean, this part of Southern Oregon is already in drought. It's not like California. We still have these magnificent trees. I have water burbling out of the earth. But I know that the rainfall is way down. The snowpack is way down. And if this continues, we're going to be in a different environment. I don't want to lose this beauty, this this place that nurtures me, the chi, the trees, I don't want to lose it. I don't want to lose, lose the streams and the brooks. And I know many of you must feel the same way. Uh, we have friends uh, who live in California, many friends, because we lived in California. And California is becoming a desert again in all parts. And it's horrible. There's fires. We just, uh, our friends in San Diego faced a whole bunch of wildfires what was it, two weeks ago? And the sequoias, there's a fire at the sequoias. There's another fire. I mean, every time I open the news, there's something is burning in California. And when I wrote the title, you know, California is burning, for those of you who don't know the reference, it was, there's a, um, a reference in history of if Rome is burning and uh, Nero is fiddling, right? Nero is fiddling as, I think he was the emperor. Uh of the Roman Empire. He's fiddling while Rome burns. And that really came to me. Are we fiddling while California burns? And the, and the, the thing that really was just enraging was when Mark Rubio uh, talked about, you know, he's representing people in southern Florida who are losing Miami Beach and he's saying, oh, yeah, there's, uh, there's climate change, but uh, we have nothing to do with it. You know, fiddlesticks, we have nothing to do with it. And I'm just like, how can we continue with 
acting like business is as usual when we're having these dramatic changes. I know everybody's experiencing it. Horrible storms. We had a terrible winter here in Southern Oregon. Um, Everything has changed. You know, people say, well, when is the climate going to change? And, you know, this is really upsetting that this may happen. And I say, what do you mean it may happen? It already has happened. And yet, when President Obama tries to do something about climate change, there's all kinds of people who jump on him. And, and it's already too little, too late. So this is my rant. Uh, I'm usually the one who comes up with a solution. Well, right now I'm not coming up with any solution. <laughs> but, I, but the first thing that, that, that we need in order to have a solution is we have to become emotionally, psychologically mobilized. And in order to do that, we have to face the pain of what is already happening. This is painful for many of us. We don't want the climate to change because it's not changing in a way, generally speaking, that is beneficial to anybody. And so I'm, I'm inviting us in this first segment of our show, the first step towards healing is to come out of denial is acknowledgement of a problem. And I want to tell you that I acknowledge the problem and that I'm in deep pain about the problem and I'm in deep pain about this problem every day and I don't know what to do about it, but I know that ending denial is the first step. So without further ado, I'm going to bring on uh, Dr. Grant Dean, who has been engaged in climate research and in fact I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about himself in case you didn't read his bio and uh, he's going back to the Arctic where he was last year where he's watching the Arctic disappear as we've known it and we'd like to have some some experiences some knowledge some guidance from him but at first I want to have Grant talk about how he feels, not just about the world, about his world. So, uh, Grant, welcome to Inside Out. Hello, Beth. Hi. Hi. So, in the spirit of we have to come out of denial in order to even mobilize ourselves to do anything, I'd like you to share with us first your personal experience with global warming and climate change that you would like to share. And then we'd like to have your background as a scientist. But why don't we start with you and how you feel? All right. So how do I feel about climate change and global warming? It's a very um, visceral and real topic for me. I know my wife's listening to this show, and so I'm very sorry to have to bring this up. But we lost our home in the California wildfires in San Diego in 2007. And uh, absolutely everything that we owned except for what we could put in our car uh, was burnt. Mm -hmm. And that was, uh, it's difficult to describe the impact of that, that experience. And, you know, we live in California, and wildfires are one of, the, one of the hazards that we have here. But 
going through that experience was painful and uh, emotional and something that it took us both a while to to recover from. So I feel like our lives have been personally touched by uh, the wildfires in in California. So we, I think we have a, to the extent that that problem is related to climate change, and there have been wildfires in California for a long time, of course, um, we have been personally touched by this problem. Yes, I think the important thing is because people will say, well, you know, You've always had wildfires in California. Yeah. <laughs> but look at the drought. That is going to make us more likely to have wildfires. You know, it's, it's, it's an exacerbation of conditions that already exist. You may live in uh, an area in the Midwest that has always had torno- tornadoes. That doesn't mean you're prepared to deal with uh, how many more tornadoes or how long the season is. Uh, you know, you may be living in a in a place where it's always snowed, but it doesn't mean that you're that you are used to having this much snow. So what I'm saying is that yes, those people who want to pretend that there's nothing really going on can say, well, of course, there's always been wildfires in California. But and ha- go ahead, Grant. Well, you you raise some some very important points. So if if I may, let me just say a little bit uh, about. That please, to put it, please. To, put it, to put it all into a context. So there's climate and then there's weather. Mm-hmm. And they're not the same thing. Weather's what we get from day to day. And nobody could say that the weather, that the climate in the Arctic is warm. <laughs> you, <laughs> right. you, don't, you don't have a tropical climate in the Arctic. But I've been up there and I can tell you that you have warm days. So isn't that interesting? We have yes. an Arctic climate, but we have warm days. And it's the same in San Diego. We, we, we have a, a sort of an arid tropical climate here. But we have cold days. We have cold days here. So weather is what we get today. Climate is what we're likely to get over the course of a decade. Yes. And, and climate is shifting. I don't know of any climate scientist who would argue that climate is shifting now, or, or argue that it hasn't shifted in the past. In fact, the stability that we've had with climate over the last, actually, the last tens of thousands of years is very unusual. It doesn't happen all that often. It's called the interglacial period, and we're kind of at the end of it. And so change is more the norm. What people argue about these days is how much of the change is due to what we're doing on the planet. Yes. And, and many climate, not all, but many climate scientists agree that what human beings are doing is changing climate. And it's not all bad. I mean, what we would be expecting in the future is another ice age. So we don't, <laughs> so, we don't want that either. You know, we don't, we, really, we don't want to go back to another ice age. That wouldn't be good for us. So having burnt some of the fossil fuels that we have, is not necessarily a bad thing, but you can certainly have too much of a good <laughs> too thing. Too much of a good thing. <laughs> too much of a good thing. And um, it's generally agreed that about 450 um, parts per million is about where we want to taper off our emissions. And right now we're at about 400. So, you know, and, and just maybe, I don't know if this helps everybody relax a little bit, but... 
it's highly unlikely that the world's going to become uninhabitable in the next decade, you know. But what is true, though, is that we, we're likely to see more extreme weather events, as you're pointing out, Beth. Yeah. The chances of hurricanes uh, in a warmer world, on average, the chances of hurricanes go up. Um, pre precipitation patterns change, rainfall patterns change, snowfall changes. And that affects, in California, that particularly affects us with our water supply and with the chances of um, wildfire that increase during droughts. Yes, well, that's a fascinating piece of information. You know, be about uh, that we're going to we're going to have an ice age coming. So a little global warming is a good thing. I love that. I love that. Yes. That's hopeful. <laughs> but you know, for people who plan to live more than a decade, this is grim as far as I'm concerned. And if I had young children, I'd be even more upset. You know, uh, we're going to be going to commercial break soon but what i'd like you to do grant before we do is can you just give a little background so people know who they're listening to all right well i was born and raised in new zealand um i i'm an academic so i i did my university education in new zealand except for my phd where i went to england and did that at the university of oxford in mathematical physics and then after that, uh, about 24 years ago, I joined Scripps Institution of Oceanography here in La Jolla in San Diego. And it's, uh, Scripps is one of the world's largest oceanographical institutions. And here I go out to sea in storms, I go up to the Arctic, and I go out into the world and study the, the world, study the processes that control and lead to weather and climate. And don't you go around and meet other people uh, who are scientists in this field, meet them at conferences, uh, share notes? Absolutely. I'm part of a worldwide conversation. Um, I don't call myself a climate expert, but I do talk to people who are climate experts. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, we meet at conferences, we share our results, and we talk about models, theories, data, and the future. Very good. Well, we are going to be taking a commercial break now, but when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Grant Dean. And do give us a call and ask Grant the questions that you don't know who else to ask about climate change and what we have to do about it. Thank you. Let's go to commercial now. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Bring Beth into your world in person or via the Internet. Learn how by visiting her website, BethGreen.org. At the website, sign up for her newsletter to keep abreast of her latest activities, blogs, videos, and more. Just for signing up, you'll receive a free PDF copy of Living with Reality, her 688-page volume that helps us understand ourselves in relatable terms, as well as offers a proven program to heal and co-create a better world. But there's more. Learn about Beth's four other books, both fiction and nonfiction. Check out her gorgeous music, which is heartfelt and mystical. Become acquainted with Beth and James's programs for healing and training and discover their community, the Stream Center for the New Spirituality, which welcomes you wherever you are in the world. All this and more can be found at Beth's website, www.bethgreen.org. Again, that's bethgreen.org. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. 
You're tuned in to Inside Out with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To reach us on the show, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. If you'd rather send us an email, the address is beth at bethgreen.org. Now, back to Inside Out. Welcome back to Inside Out. Today we're talking to climate scientist Grant Dean, uh, Dr. Grantine, by the way. Uh, and uh, so if you've just joined us, just letting you know what we're doing. And um, we're talking about climate change and why it's so hard for us to face it. So in the first segment of our show, uh, we spoke kind of personally about how it feels to be facing climate change. And, and Grant gave us some fascinating information about how a little global warming is a good thing, but we're going too far. Um, and He's put it into perspective that there would be climate change anyway because we're we're at the end of an era where we would have had stability. But uh, we are also contributing to that climate change in a way that could make it a lot worse for us. So we've talked about a little bit about coming out of denial. And, of course, the theme of our show today is what is the problem with us facing up to this problem? And... um, Grant has some comments on that 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 he's been discussing with other scientists. So we'd love to hear from you on that topic, Grant. All right, Beth, thank you. Well, in a a perfect world, wouldn't we all come together, discuss the problem with the best information we have, and then make a rational decision about what to do, and then change, change our behavior? Um, And in fact, this did happen. Exactly this happened. Um, back in the 1980s, there was uh, something called the Montreal Protocol on substances that deplete the ozone layer. And that was back in the day when we had a lot of uh, what are called uh, CFCs that used to be used to, to pressurize cans and used as refrigerants and so on. And these chemicals were released into the atmosphere. They rose up into the atmosphere and they deleted a very important layer of the atmosphere called the ozone layer. It's very thin, but it protects us from harmful radiation from the sun. And there was uh, debate at the time. Uh, there was disagreement about what was causing the problem. There uh, were one or two uh, very famous scientists who, who discovered the underlying chemistry and uh, sort of told the world what needed to be done. And then there was a big meeting in Montreal and a protocol was signed and implemented. The CFCs were essentially eliminated and the, the, the hole in the ozone layer started to repair itself. And that repair is still underway today. I so, remember that. What a wonderful success. And yes. there, are, there are even very moving video footage of, of, of a, a young woman who stood up at the, at the protocol and, and spoke very passionately about how her generation was the generation who was going to suffer melanomas and eye cataracts. And they were the ones who were going to inherit this problem and pleaded to the leaders to, uh, and the captains of industry to do something about it. Well, why can't we do the same thing with our, with our carbon emissions? And I, I think, and scientists have talked about this, well, some scientists have talked about this a lot, and it's a different kind of problem we're dealing with. The CFCs were largely manufactured by a small group of manufacturers, and furthermore, they were replaced by other chemicals that could do the same job, but without the harmful effects. 
So it wasn't that difficult for everybody else to agree that the industry needed to change and our behavior needed to change. But when we deal with carbon emissions and our energy usage, it shoots home at a very, very personal level. I drive a car, I personally drive a car that gets 23 to 24 miles to the gallon, and I feel very guilty about it. Mm. And so why don't I change my car? And I've asked myself that question. Why don't yes. I? Why, Why don't, don't I do that? Well, it's a, it's, <laughs> it, would, it would actually be quite a lot more expensive for me to get a really fuel-efficient car, given the, the circumstances that I'm currently in. And I've thought about doing it, and what I tell myself is that I work hard, I kind of deserve my car, it's my one little luxury, and I rationalize it in my mind, and I agonize over whether I'm going to sell it or not. And then ultimately what I tell myself is, you know what, at the end of the day, because I know what my carbon footprint is, because there are tools online where you can work out your carbon footprint. Oh, and God, I, I don't want to know mine. And I want to know exactly how guilty I should feel every day. So... So I know that the main part of my carbon footprint comes from flying. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I are very, very conscientious about recycling. We run a compost heap in our backyard. We gave away some of our compost the other day. We're very frugal with our waters. We're in the bottom 25% of water users in, in, in California. But when it comes to the carbon usage, I cannot move my carbon footprint. I fly around the world, and my carbon footprint is huge. And I tell myself, well, how can I work on the problem? If I want to fly up to the Arctic and study the mountain glaciers up there and try and understand the problem, I can't row myself up there. I can't, it's not practical for me to take a ship. So, you know, either I don't go or I fly. And if I fly, anything I do in my car is just minuscule. And so the rationalizations go on and on and on. Yes, yes. And I sit back and I feel bad about it and do nothing, you know. I'm with you. I am that uh, grunt. I mean, we we have when we lived in California, we were having solar power put in, but we now are living in Southern Oregon. There isn't any company out here that's even doing doing mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I guess we just don't have enough sun. And I just learned that there is, you know, somewhere that there's technology now that's being developed where you can uh, collect uh, solar energy at night. Well, then certainly you should be able to. We should be able to get some. And we have lots of sunny days, too. But I understand what you're saying. And, of course, my immediate thought is, um, why can't all the scientists get together and agree they're not going to have conferences anymore? They're going to use video conferencing. That's that's a, a, a fantastic idea. And some scientists actually um, regulate the carbon footprint of the conference. So the carbon footprint of the conference is measured and regulated. So conference proceedings are not published, and you get the conference proceedings on a CD-ROM, for example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or a mass media card. And um, But why do we insist on assembling in the same place? And I think part of it is the same reason that we all like to go to movie theaters. Why don't we sit at home and watch movies on TV? Why do we still get together? And I think movies are probably slightly different, but at conferences, a lot of the work is done when you run into people and you sit down and you organize a time to meet and you never know exactly who you're going to see, but you see a lot of your peers and colleagues and you get a lot of work done, not during the talks, but in the chance encounters that you have between the talks. Yes. And a lot of the conference work is done then, actually. 
Um, I totally understand that. But you see, I think that it's so much of this is habit. I get that you have to get to the Arctic in order to study the Arctic. Uh, and I don't think walking is advisable. <laughs> but, <laughs> Not to the Arctic. <laughs> <laughs> th- that would really be tough. And um, I don't have the qualifications for that. I would need to be at a much higher level <laughs> to be able to get a- across the Arctic Circle there, the liquid Arctic Circle. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, flippers could grow or something, who knows. Yes. But what but the, the I you know the thing is we have a certain concept of how our needs are going to get met and nobody is actually asking or maybe they are asking the question there is no answer. But very few people are asking the question of how can we create that uh meeting each other casually environment via video. And, you know, just like taking that on as a challenge as though your life depended on it. See, this is the strange thing that I'm feeling because what this, this ozone, I'm so glad you reminded me about the CFCs. CFC? CFS? I, you know, my brain CFC, isn't... CFCs, you're, you're right. Oh, I got that. it right the first time. Yes. Okay. I have cognitive impairment. What can I tell you? So uh, anyway, but I do remember that. And yes, it was a problem that it was someone else could solve it. We didn't have to solve it, right? That's um, correct. That's correct. And, that's, and that, of course, is the whole theme of our show today is, you know, is the problem us? And I, I have noticed that, you know, two things, you know, that the ego, of course, is always about me and protecting me and my comforts and I want and all of that. Yes, 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 which you were just describing for yourself and I am that. Uh, but also the ego is habituated to certain ways of experiencing good feelings. So, for example, if the ego has the human ego, let's say, has so many thousands and thousands and thousands of years of feeling good out of individual achievement. Let's say we're all out there running and I win the game and that makes me wonderful and I get a big ego burst out of that. What would it take to retrain our egos to get the same enjoyment out of having a run where we all end up flat on our faces laughing because we're so tired. <laughs> do you mm. see what I mean? Mm-hmm. I do. You know, and this is part of the problem is that the ego gets stuck in certain habitual behaviors. Oh, I get a high from drinking alcohol or I get a high from whatever it is, uh, making lots of money and then being able to show off. Now, this is separate and apart from what do I really need. If you really need to get to the Arctic because there are no other ways for you to study what's going on, and if that is the case, then, okay, we can look at that and say, well, is it the highest good of all for you to go to the Arctic, and then, therefore, is it worthwhile for you to be flying? But here is a situation where it's more questionable. But the ego is so habituated to certain ways of experiencing pleasure, happiness, joy. Oh, there's Dr. So-and-so. I haven't seen him since that, that conference in Stockholm. Let me go over and give him a bear hug and find out what's going on. And then I get to feel loved because Dr. So-and-so says, oh, Beth, I haven't seen you, you know, since that conference in Stockholm. And I'm feeling great because I feel loved. 
And it's that feeling of love that we look for when we kind of come together. Now, unfortunately, very few of us feel loved anyway. And so many of us (laughs) are sitting at these conferences saying, well, you know, he got credit for an idea that I came up with last year or 20 years ago, and I'm not getting any credit anymore. Or, oh, did you hear so-and-so was promoted. I mean, there's all of those other undercurrents. It's not like we get to get uh, together at conferences and it's all we feel love for each other. There's competition. Well, it's interesting that you should raise that, Beth. And even before you started, uh, even before you raised that issue, I was thinking there is an undercurrent to all this as well that must be acknowledged, which is the highly competitive and egoistic nature of scientists. I mean, we live off our intellects. And essentially, it's a competition to win. Whose ideas, whose theories, whose data, who's got the right answer, who is going to to be recognized? And it's that fundamental, I want to be part of the tribe, but I want to be an important part of the tribe. <laughs> and I, I, I want, I must succeed within the tribe. And that goes along with everything else. And because scientists on the whole don't tend to be, I mean, I think we're fine, but if we went out into industry or we did other things, we worked in the financial sector, we would receive other kinds of ego rewards, perhaps more materialistic. So we have our own set of ego rewards. And of course, we're jostling for those too. And there's this fear, if I don't go, if I don't compete, if I don't show up, I will be forgotten, my work will be forgotten, and I will no longer be important and significant within my community. And it's, it's very real, and it's the way we operate. Unfortunately, it is where we're at. There's, yes, you know. yes, and if, if I am not recognized by the scientific community or the academic community, that could actually threaten my living. It would threaten my living. It would it would threaten my ability to be able to go on and do science, you know. And so there's actually very good scientists play have to. Um, we have a very very strong set of ethics in terms of what is and is not permissible in terms of data processing, for example, because the temptation to overstate the case um, mm. to receive some is is immense. And so anybody who ever does that is instantly excommunicated. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have to play the game very carefully, and you have to be excruciatingly honest about, about, what, you, about what you do. But, but those pressures are, are present every day. Yes, and so it would take an absolute commitment from everybody to stop using conferences for the purposes that they're used for in order for people to say, is there another option what else can we do? And there, there is just another example of, you know, if we really take seriously, if we can allow ourselves to feel the pain of the world as we are co-creating it with nature, then we become more impacted and that might uh, wake us up. But if we don't wake up on a collective level, that old desire to compete is going to get us. I can't be the only one who does this and still feel like I'm going to be safe in the world. 
It's like being open or vulnerable. If I am the only person on the planet who tells the truth about myself, I'm in a much more vulnerable position than I (laughs) would be if everybody on the planet was willing to tell the truth about themselves. Otherwise, they can say, oh, look at her. Do you see? So it's the collective change that is so incredibly important, a collective agreement. So, But that would take huge amount of leadership. And where is that going to come from? We have a call already, by the way. Um, I'd like you, uh, I'd like to take our caller just for a moment because we're going to have to go to commercial break. But then I want to come back to this point, Grant, because I'd love to know what you, what you have to say about this because it's the collective. It's only the collective that's going to be able to save us. Otherwise, everybody is going off in the direction of saying, there's nothing I can do. Um, I'm not going to get my needs met, et cetera, and there will be some truth to that. So um, very quickly, Helen from California, would you like to ask your question? Yes, thank you. Uh, it goes right along with what you're saying about the collective needs to change, but I think of when you talk about the huge carbon footprint of flying, and I think of if everyone agreed not to fly, you know, the the whole... Uh, <laughs> Vacation Airline industry, in- yeah. the whole vacation industry around the world, which is billions and billions of dollars, would would go def- debunk. You know, would would go under, wouldn't it? I mean, I I try to drive places because of that, but I'm just saying when we think about the changes that it would make Take. in the collective uh, to, well, to not fly yes. anymore. It's you know we have to think. No wonder people are resistant to it because it would cost people billions of dollars. Well, that's absolutely true. And this is an important uh, point you're making. And I'd like to just comment on that very briefly, which is that if we all went to visit places locally, there would still be a tourist business. But it's hard to imagine that you're going to go stay in a motel that's 40 minutes away. But we could limit our flying and change the way that we do our vacations, but it would mean that we'd have to feel like our lives are at stake. I want to get back to that same point. If When we get it, it's, it's like being an alcoholic, right? I drink and 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 people say, oh my God, you're not doing well at your job or you're, you look terrible or your eyes are bloodshot or your wife is getting annoyed or you know, your children haven't seen you in 60 years or whatever it is. Uh, how many of us actually will stop drinking then? And then there's, oh my God, your whole life is falling apart. You've got cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, your life is at stake. Now are you going to stop drinking? And uh, sometimes it takes that much of a wake-up call. But what I'm trying to say is, we've had that kind of a wake-up call. (laughs) If you ask me, we've already had that wake-up call, but we're still not listening. So on that note, we are going to go to commercial break, but don't go away because we, and Helen, don't go away either. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Bring Beth into your world in person or via the Internet. Learn how by visiting her website, bethgreen.org. At the website, sign up for her newsletter to keep abreast of her latest activities, blogs, videos, and more. 
Just for signing up, you'll receive a free PDF copy of Living with Reality, her 688-page volume that helps us understand ourselves in relatable terms, as well as offers a proven program to heal and co-create a better world. But there's more. Learn about Beth's four other books, both fiction and nonfiction. Check out her gorgeous music, which is heartfelt and mystical. Become acquainted with Beth and James's programs for healing and training, and discover their community, the Stream Center for the New Spirituality, which welcomes you wherever you are in the world. All this and more can be found at Beth's website, www.bethgreen.org. Again, that's bethgreen.org. The 7th Wave Channel on The Voice America Network. You're tuned in to Inside Out with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To reach us on the show, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. If you'd rather send us an email, the address is beth at bethgreen.org. Now, back to Inside Out. Hi there. Welcome back. We're talking to Dr. Grant Dean, who is a climate scientist who's helping us to uh, distinguish between fact and fiction. And uh, we are all fiddling as uh, California burns, and we're talking about why. You know, why is it so hard for us to change? So um, before I go on, I would I would love to, at some point at the before the end of the show, we're going to ask Grant to talk about some informational resources that he has to suggest for us. But uh, we're hot in the discussion about why it's so difficult for us to change and the necessity for really collective action for anything to change. And I'm wondering first if Helen is still on the phone with us. Helen, are you still there? Okay. Uh, she isn't. I think she... Oh, she is. Okay, Helen. Yes. Did you have anything else you wanted to share because we gave you the bum rush? Hmm. Uh, the only other thing that I would like Grant to talk to us about is, are there people who are trying to come up with solutions that will postpone, you know, in lieu of this collective agreement to everybody changing and all these industries collapsing because there would be no more coal or whatever, you know. Are there other more, you know, bizarre-sounding scientific (laughs) fixes that are being worked on that might postpone until we can come to a collective agreement? Great question, Helen. Thank you so much. And I'll hang up now. Thank you. Grant? Well, yes, there are. Um, And these range from uh, political and financial strategies like creating a carbon market where we artificially put a price on the value of carbon emissions. And as soon as releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere has a price put on it, then then you get companies, for example, that don't want to release carbon dioxide anymore because it's too expensive, and so they look at ways to become more efficient. Or you get companies that say, uh, we will plant a whole bunch of trees to offset your carbon emissions so you can buy our carbon credits 
that we get for planting trees. Mm -hmm. And so people become, of course, immediately inventive as soon as, as soon as there's an economy at stake around carbon. But there is a societal cost to that. Overall, we have created a debit to our economy by doing that. And so we have to have the political and social will to tolerate that cost now. But if we do, then we can make some sort of sweeping uh, improvements in efficiencies to do with, with, with carbon, for example. And then there are other strategies like what we call geoengineering. Uh, hold on a second, Grant. Before you go on to the other strategies, I'd like to say that I recently read that there was a poll that showed that a majority of Americans were willing to pay more in order to avert climate disaster. Well, in that case, we may have the political and social will to create a new system of carbon credits. Now, you, we haven't seen any support for it. I believe the Obama administration has attempted to promote those kinds of ideas without much success. Uh, well, and, and now we come to a realm where <laughs> I'm not qualified to comment. As a scientist, I believe carbon credits would be good for our, our mm -hmm. planet and good for us socially. Um, but, but in terms of the politics of that, I don't know any more about that than the other person on the street. Why don't we have a system of carbon credits in place? I presume it's because it's a very difficult political program to sell. Yeah, but the interesting—I mean, this was only one study, but it was the—but it was historic because it was the first study, I believe, that showed that people were getting scared straight. Do you know what I mean? Like there was that, there was this thing. Oh, uh, this film that they went around showing young people scared straight, so you see what prison life would be like. And it's like you continue doing right. this. This is, you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So you know that was an indicator that people are in fact getting scared straight. So then, please go on to your next uh, uh, piece of information, which of course I can't remember what it was. Geo something. Well, this is sort of. I don't know. Have you heard the frame Deus Ex Machina? In the, the Greeks used to make these plays that were so mm -hmm. convoluted and so tragic, and the characters would get themselves into such a horrible mess that <laughs> at the end of the play, a figure on a mechanical stand would come floating out of the, of the sky, and they were one of the gods, and they would set everything to rights. They would use their godlike powers and straighten everything out, and that was the end of the play. So... <laughs> And I, I think uh, science has been so uh, successful. We're a victim of our own success in many ways. We've been so successful at doing so many remarkable things that I think many people who aren't scientists believe science will save us. There will be some, yeah. there will be some silver bullet, some magic wand, some deus ex machina maneuver that will get us out of the, out of the frying pan. And, in fact, that it may be true. I'm not saying it's not true, but I don't think we should bank on it. Um, but nevertheless, people are coming up with these schemes to stabilize climate. And one of them is, for example, we could have, um, we could have a fleet of airplanes that every day would fly up into the, high into the sky and would release all these tiny particles, soot effectively, that would reflect some of the sunlight back out into space. And it, it would work. And it, it, what I believe, I, when I say it would work, my opinion as a scientist is that there's a, a, a good chance that, that this would help. 
but once we do that, there's no turning back because if we stopped, things would be, if we, if we did that and kept on burning fuel, if we kept on that and, and kept on, it's like having your foot on the gas and, and, the, and the accelerator at the same time. Sorry, you the, mean the brake. brake. I mean the brake. I mean the yeah. gas and the brake at the same time. So if you're putting your foot on the, on the gas and you're putting your foot on the brake and then you take the foot off the brake, of course, you, you know, things are even worse. Um, and, and so, what happens I, when all that soot starts falling back onto <laughs> earth? That's what I want to know. How, how do you keep it up? Keep blowing. Everybody is going to have to blow upwards at three o'clock in the afternoon. Well, of course, there would there there would be consequences to doing that, but it may be that we could we could stabilize things for a while to get ourselves sorted out. You know, to develop more effective transport technologies, to train scientists to use Skype instead of going to conferences to adjust our material appetites so that we could get our consumption of fossil fuels under control, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, you know, some of these geoengineering plans aren't, aren't completely uh, far-fetched. Uh, but some of us, myself included, are, are terribly afraid of the law of unintended consequences. We, yes. we, we think we're doing something smart and it turns out that we weren't. And so we would have to be, I think, uh, pretty motivated before we would start doing such, such things. And even the release of, of uh, particulate matter into the, into the upper atmosphere, that wouldn't prevent ocean acidification, for example, that as we keep on releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, some of it ends up in the ocean, and that changes the pH of the ocean, and that influences the growth of certain kinds of marine organisms in the ocean. And so we may be able to reflect some sunlight back into space, but that's not going to stop ocean acidification. So there is no panacea. There's no, there, there, you know, I don't think there's, there's, even in terms of geoengineering, there's not one final ultimate solution to the problem. And I think of it as an option of last resort. Um, we would have to be in pretty dire straits to, to think of that. And I certainly don't think we're there yet. But... If we burn all the oil and the coal, I think we, <laughs> I think we'll be well underway. <laughs> oh my God, it's amazing to think about throwing dirt into the air. I mean, this is the problem. I thought we were putting so much dirt into the air. Uh, it's this is this is kind of a sad and and and. Uh, shocking moment. I loved Helen's question because she's asking the question that all of us are asking is, isn't there something that we can do so we don't have to change? It's like the people who say, well, well, can't I take a pill so that I don't get drunk uh, on alcohol? <laughs> can't, is, you know what I mean? Can I, have a, can I have a pill so that overeating will not make me fat? Or uh, that is going to, you know, first I want to eat all these foods that are going to create uh, you know, blockages in my arteries and can't I take a pill to get rid of the blockages in the arteries as opposed to change the way we eat? And isn't this really, uh, you know, the point? I, I, I love the idea that people are thinking of uh, what can we do because we're already going down the tubes. But I also feel like this is just shows us the way our consciousness is. It's the one thing we don't want to do is have to change. And I understand. I mean, Helen brought up a very important point. We're all afraid of the economic consequences. But the irony is we're already having economic consequences to climate change. The insurance claims, the fires, the floods, the tornadoes, the storms, the lost days. I mean, there's all, it's, we're already paying the price. Grant, I can't believe we're running out of time. Can you give us some information 
uh, informational websites and resources for people if they want to go up further. Yes, and Beth, to quote one of my favorite people, let's be real and deal with what we have here. It would be wonderful if we could all be in our higher consciousness and come together and make a, uh, make a good decision. But uh, being realistic, I don't think that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the best things any person can do is to become educated about what the future most likely looks like in their area. And for those of us in California, there is a government website. It's www.climatechange.ca.gov. And it talks about California and what we can expect in terms of climate change in California, the risks that we we might look at. And I think, to be realistic, we are all going to have to prepare for uh, the risks. Mm -hmm. We're not going to solve climate change overnight. And even if we weren't changing things, we would still be subjected to it anyway. So we need to learn to live well in a world where we have these risks. And we need to educate ourselves about these risks and decide how we are going to personally manage the risk. And uh, my wife and I made a conscious decision that we were going to stay living in California. We're going to take the risk of the wildfires. And we're smart. We have good insurance. (laughs) Yes. We have good insurance and we take sensible precautions to risk against wildfire. Um, And so I recommend that you check out that website and learn about what climate is is going to look like in California and what the experts are saying and uh, what people can do to prepare themselves for the risks. And then if we can take away, if we can manage the fear of the future, if we cannot be hysterical or upset about what our future looks like, if we can get some information and some, some plans for how we're going to cope with it, perhaps then we can start to think rationally about how to change our behavior in terms of our energy consumption and, um, see if we can promote the idea of carbon credits, see how we can reduce our carbon footprint, conserve water, and so on. Thank you, Grant. I think that's very good advice. So here it's so ironic. We started out, I want people to feel desperate, and then you end up saying don't. But I think they're both true. We want people to wake up to the reality and then take a breath and say, what are we going to do now? Yes. So I've, oh, if, oh, if I may, if I may, uh, just one last quick question. Where can we uh, go we ha- we to only have like a, that? of oh. carbon footprint okay uh, so just cal- google it just google just, it just google carbon footprint calculator and you'll come up with some options very good great Thank question you. great question okay well uh james please tell yes. us what's coming up next week i will do so right now yes our next edition of inside out will be a post father's day look at how you really feel about your dad or how you really felt about your dad. Some of us wax poetic about dad and how great he was. Remember Father's Day? Some of us are pissed at the guy till the day we die. Some of us didn't even know him. How did you really feel about your dad? Do you know? Do you want to? Did you fear him, hate him, crave more attention from him, really bond with him, or barely see him or barely know him? Did you adopt your mother's view of him? Did you reflect his view of himself? Did he embarrass you? Did he overshadow you? What's a dad for anyway? Let's get a real inside-out look into our relationship with dad. Who was he to you? And how did that affect you? So tune in and hear host Beth Green guide our discussion with her usual humor and insight. If you call in, she could even help you sort out your feelings. Father's Day may have passed, but let's not let another day go by without understanding a relationship that has been so critical to who we are. And join our weekly post-show forum 
via the phone or the internet where you get to join the conversation whenever you can. And now, a final word from Beth. Yes, and look at t- to the right side of our host page and you'll see a link that says Join Inside Out Forum. Please click on it and you'll see the, how you can uh, do it by phone and uh, on the internet. And I just want to thank Grant for joining us. I, it was a delight having you, even though it was a painful topic. I hope people found this conversation as stimulating as I did. And I know I'm going to ask you back, Grant, because this problem is not going away. And i uh, so happy to see all of you. And please keep calling and sending us emails and letting us know that your voice, that you're listening, you're waking up, and we're all coming together to confront this huge issue that's facing humanity. Until next week, this is Beth Green from the Inside Out. Thank you for making us a part of your week. Listen for the next edition of Inside Out with Beth Green and James Maynard next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Have a great week. Have a great week.